Welcome back to another episode of NPMA Bug Bites. I'm your host, Brittany Campbell, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Jim Fredericks and Dr. Mike Bentley. We are all three entomologists with the National Pest Management Association. And today we are joined by one of my favorite people in the industry, our very special guest, Galvin Murphy Sr. I want to say senior because there's also a junior and I only email the right one, well, obviously about 50% of the time. So we have senior here with us today from Yankee Pest Control. So welcome, Galvin. We're super excited to have you uh, on the show today. And to get started, can you tell us a little bit about Yankee Pest Control? I know you founded the company, your role, and how you got into the industry. Well, it's kind of a funny story, Brittany, how I got into the industry. I was looking for a part-time job. I recently got out of the Marine Corps, and I secured a job in the local fire department. And as you know, most firemen have a part-time job somewhere, and that's what I was looking for. And I was sitting in the firehouse one day, and a, a PMP walked in looking for directions into some of the Harvard University buildings. We got talking. He said, you ever looking for a part-time job? Come see me. Well, that's history right there. I went and saw him. I went to work for them. I uh, spent a few years with them before they got bought out by a big national firm uh, that didn't like the idea of any part-timers, so I broke off uh, inside Yankee Pest Control and it's been having a great time ever since. That's cool. How? What year was that that you started Yankee? I started 1990. 1990. So over 30 years ago. I'm an old <laughs> guy, no doubt about it. I've been around for a long time. And you've turned it into a family business now, right? Yeah, you know, that, that's part of the best you know, probably the best part of it, right? We got Galvin in there, um, you know, running the marketing side of it. My uh, son-in-law is in there um, working on the, the service side. Uh, the other service manager besides Christopher is uh, John. And I, I worked with John years ago. I worked with his father years ago in pest control. So it just keeps coming back great. And certainly Barbara's the one you want to talk to if we owe you any money. And my wife pays all the bills. So uh you know, it, it's great to keep it the family side of it and, and, and try and keep the whole business as a family run business and, and having uh, relationships with uh, all the team members, uh, not only just professional, but uh, on the personal side, too. That's awesome. <clears throat> is, is Galvin Jr. also a firefighter, too, right? He is. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, he's, he's following right down in my footsteps. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> he, that's what he's doing. So, yeah, he's a firefighter. He worked with us on his days off. He handles all our marketing. It works out fairly well. The days he's in the firehouse, I can pick up his slack on anything that he needs done in the field. So it works out great. That's great. Now, you also mentioned, you know, you're Marine in the Marine Corps. And I think you've been super involved with pest vets and really getting veterans involved in our industry, too, right? Yeah, I like to work with veterans, you know, the and, and you know, right from the get go with pest vets. Uh, the, the thing that we talked about hiring a veteran is they know to be to work on time. They know to wear a uniform, they know to look presentable, and they know to just do what they're told. So perfect for an entry-level uh, technician. So I, I always thought that it was a great uh, group of people to go after. I, I like to deal with some of our local veterans reps in the sound halls and city halls and let them know when we're hiring. And uh, we've gotten some fabulous people that way. Yeah, my my dad is a Marine. So I, I, I was... You know, I used to always get corrected, you know, was a Marine. You're always a Marine if you're a Marine. So my dad is a Marine. And uh, I can remember, I think I was like five or six years old when he was teaching me about the gig line, making sure that the, the line down the button of your shirt matches perfectly with the seam of your pants and everything else in the front. The belt buckle has to match perfectly in the front. So 
That's uh, I, I I credit all of my sharp and snazzy dressing to uh, the, the the skills that he taught me from what he learned <laughs> in the Marine Corps. So is that what you is that what you attributed to? I see. <laughs> that's, that's blaming it on attributing it to I, all of the good stuff came from that. It's it's uh, so that we'll, we'll put it at that. Well, I think well, it, I think it's really cool that you uh, that you've kind of tapped into that resource. And I know that it's, um, uh, you know, as we build the workforce development program at NPMA and kind of identify um, and grow the workforce um, to enter the industry, um, veterans are obviously an, an amazing uh, resource. And um, I think you mentioned uh, Pest Vets. Um, if you want to find out more about Pest Vets, uh, which is NPMA's uh, veteran, uh, veteran-focused um program, you can visit pestvets.org to find out uh, plenty of information and resources there um, to tap into that as well. You know, Jim, to expand on that, one of the things that we found was we've had some uh, young people come back after doing their four or six years and they're, they're looking to use their VA benefits and go to college. And if you can work with them around their school schedule and get them two or three days a week. They're collecting their check there. They're studying at night and they're working for you on the days they're not in school or the weekends. It's a great relationship that we've had with uh, a few different veterans that have come home. And uh, unfortunately, right now, uh, the three that I can think of off the top of my head have uh, finished school and moved on to their chosen career paths. Uh, one of them is still in graduate school. But it, it, was, it was great to have them, uh, those three individuals that are with us. So, Yeah, that's cool. You also talk about, um, about like your family atmosphere. Um, obviously, family, family, and then, you know, close friends, family, and then the, um, you know, the, the business family, but the family, when I think about um, Yankee, it's more than just the, the company and the, and, and, the, and the blood ties, but it's also the entire community. Um, I remember you telling me, Galvin, about um, uh, some of the community outreach stuff that you guys have done that's resulted in some really positive public relations. The thing I'm thinking of is the big mural uh, on, on, uh, on uh, one of your branch offices, uh, that that goes up against the walking path. Do you, you you mind telling our listeners a little bit about that whole that whole project? It's come a couple of years sure. back, I guess, right? Yeah, that, that goes back three or four years. You know, it was a fun thing. We we were in that building and along that walking path, and of course, we're in a city. So, what do kids want to do? They want to tag a building or or what they call an unclaimed canvas. And uh, so, what I did is I got in touch with the folks down City Hall. And I wanted to work something out. I wanted to hire somebody that was going to paint it, put some cartoon characters up there or something like that. Uh, I remember back in, in high school when we learned about the broken window theory, uh, that one tag still won't tag over the other one's artworks. So I was kind of betting that that would work. Uh, so what we came up with was a plan. We got three high schools in the area, uh, had their art kids come out. We put our staging up against the back of the building. Uh, we fed them every time they came out and they worked. We had the whole... As they put the canvas prepared for them, we hired painters to come in and they each got a third of the building. We held a contest to, to see who could do uh, not necessarily the, the best looking or the most interesting, but the best overall liked uh, segment. I wanted one to be uh, what I called artsy, uh, another one to be about uh, the history of the area, something to do with that, and something else to do with some type of bugs. And uh, the local kids just went kind of crazy with it. We're having fun with it. I wanted so that nobody would be tagging the back of the building, putting gang signs up. That's all I wanted. It turned into a great community event. We were on the front page of uh, the Malden uh, website for the city. 
And for the local newspapers, we held a contest. We asked people to go by and vote which one they liked. So the kids uh, painted. Uh, it probably took them about a month and a half to get the whole thing done, get the staging down. Uh, we had one uh, that was really artsy, uh, crafty type. Uh, another one that showed the uh, the local area with the uh, the bike path leading to the old amusement park down at the beach. Uh, and then they put some of the uh, their favorite high school principals up there and stuff like that. And then the uh, the final one was from uh, Malden Catholic, and they they got the one for uh, with bugs. I wanted bugs on it, and they changed the whole concept. You give these kids a little idea, and what they come back with just absolutely blew me away. Um, they, they did a cartoon thing back there, some big monster insect coming in, invading the town. And, and they get a helicopter coming in with a guy with YPC written across his chest, uh, zapping this big bug, saving all the buildings from being torn down. Uh, you know, in the end, I mean, it, it was great. We had uh, probably a couple hundred people show up the day that we gave the awards out because we gave each art department a check. Uh, we gave everybody cookies and hot chocolate that day. And the mayor, the city councils, the state reps, the fire chief, the police chief, they all come down with all the principals of the schools and the parents, and we had the uh, the award ceremony who got it. So we took this little idea that I had about how can I keep the back of the building looking lousy and spruce it up a little bit and turn it into this great uh, event where the kids had a canvas to work on. We got uh, some really good media coverage off it. The local newspapers come out, and I uh, took a lot of pictures during it, but uh, most importantly, we had a lot of fun. I mean, the local pizza place that we service sent down pizza. Uh, one of the other restaurants we do that had a big bakery, we sent down cookies to the kids all the time. It, it, was, it was really a, it was a lot of fun, and the results are fantastic. And yeah, the bottom line is broken window theory works. Nobody's ever come in and tagged the building again. They won't go over each other's artwork. So that's cool. Uh, all the way across, it worked, right? That is, I just love that story, and. Uh... It's, it's a great way to, I mean, you know, th that, that little idea, you know, you were, you were, you were doing it to keep people from writing graffiti on the back of your, on the back of your building. And it turned into this great uh, PR outreach campaign, you know, helped out the, helped out the schools, got everybody involved. Uh, I just love it. I just, I just love that story. Well, Galvin, that's an awesome story. We appreciate everything you've done for our country, for our industry, getting veterans involved, uh, back into our workforce. So we definitely appreciate you. You are certainly an inspiration to our industry. So I almost hate to do this next part to you, but are you ready to be subjected to the game we're about to play on the podcast? I am, and I, I will try my best. And it brings me back to the days on the 4th of July and they, they asked me to grade the little kids with the strollers that they all decked out in red, white, and blue and which one won. And uh, they gave me one gift to give away, and I had to run out to the store and buy enough gifts to give each kid something. And I'm not a big one about giving, making everybody a winner, but that, that was a tough one telling three-year-olds that they didn't win because their carriage wasn't pretty enough that day. But I think I can beat up uh, Jim and Mike pretty good. Brittany might be hard voting against you, but we'll see how we do. <laughs> All right. I like where this is going already. <laughs> Mike, do you want to let him know what he's getting into? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I got to tell you, we're all pretty delicate when it comes to this stuff. So uh, don't, don't be too hard on us. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, so here's the quick breakdown. Essentially, each one of us is going to take about five minutes or less to cover what we think is our favorite science or news related article that could impact the pest control industry from something that's come out over the last month or so. Um, we're going to ask you at the end to pick who you think uh, did the best job in whatever way that you decide to measure it. You don't have to tell us how you determine that. Um, and, uh, and all we ask is that you don't tell us 
who were the second and third place winners. We just want to know who, who came in first place, then everyone else is going to assume that they came tied for second, right? Uh, if you have any questions, we'll, we'll take time to, to answer any questions you have after each one of us goes through our summary. Uh, so that way, if we, we bring up anything you want to know more about, or if you have any questions about something we covered, please feel free to uh, let us know. Otherwise, we'll just go out and move from one person to the next. That all, all sound right. good? It does, Mike. And I just want to throw this out there. Yeah. I'm going to see all three of us later this fall in Vegas, right? Because we yes, all want sir. to go. Yes. I am like my uh, canine that I use for bed bug. I'm very food reward sensitive. So <laughs> if anybody gives me a couple of winks and mentions a good restaurant name, they might get a couple extra check marks next to their name. I'm well, before Brittany has a chance to jump in there and instantly throw food rewards at you, I will. I, it, she's very good at these subtle you know, ways to buttering up our guests. If you notice in the very beginning, already kind of laying down some subtle hints there, trying to kind of persuade you a little bit. So Brittany, no bribing on this one. We're going to try to keep it clean. All right. Calvin, I've got you. Find me in Vegas. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, the way that we usually do this uh, for order is, and oh, man, we forgot to pick our order again. So usually the person that goes first is the person that won last time. So I was crowned king of the nerds uh, last time. So I'm going to go first. But uh, we forgot to pick who is going to go second and third. So usually the way that we do this is a very heated game of rock, paper, scissors. Um, so uh, same thing as last time, Jim and Brittany, we're going to have you do rock, paper, scissors, shoot on that cadence in that order. You must keep your hands in view the whole time. Galvin will be watching as our official judge. So no funny business, no cheating. All right. All right. You ready, Brittany? I'm ready. All right. All right. Rock, rock, paper, paper scissors, scissors, shoot. shoot. All right. Dang it. I think Gosh, scissors cut paper. Time. Yeah. Yes. Oh. I would like <laughs> to, I think, I think I'm going to choose the middle spot. Middle spot. Okay. Middle spot. Power move. I like it. Yep. I'm back right, and so, up. All right. So the, uh, the last little bit of uh, order of operations here is that we usually will start off by saying the title of our paper, because sometimes the titles can be a bit long, and then we start our official five minutes. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you the, the breakdown of my paper, and I'll start, and then Jim is going to go, and then Brittany's going to go. So um, the title of my paper is Olfactory Learning supports an adaptive sugar aversion gustatory phenotype in the German cockroach. I already don't know what this means and I'm a scientist. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of big words here, but the premise of it is pretty simple. So the main focus of this study, it mainly drills down into insecticide resistance. And usually when we talk about insecticide resistance, we generally divide that into two major groups. We're either talking about physiological resistance or behavioral resistance. So physiological resistance is essentially when an insect develops uh, yeah, the target pest uh, experiences some sort of maybe it's a random genetic mutation or a physical change to its structure that allows it to become uh, to experience some decreased sensitivity and exposure to an insecticide. So it allows it to survive exposure longer. Behavioral resistance, though, is when um, it, the insect itself actually has the ability to avoid exposure in some way. And there's a bunch of different ways they do that. Now, this paper focused on German cockroaches and one known behavioral um, resistance with German cockroaches is what's known as glucose aversion. 
So what most of the baits that we use for um, germ-growing cockroach control, they include glucose because it's a known food attractant in baits. But a, there are populations of German cockroaches that have developed a behavioral resistance to this and that when they taste glucose, they will actively avoid feeding on the bait. So in this experiment, what the researchers wanted to do was look at if food odors, in addition to this, could, it, could add to and attribute to this behavioral resistance. So they looked at two different populations of cockroaches in the study. They sampled populations of cockroaches that were known to be glucose averse, so those that already exhibited that behavioral response, and wild uh, pop populations of cockroaches that weren't known to be glucose averse. And so the, through a series of different feeding experiments, they exposed the cockroaches to different amounts of different baits that um, included uh, glucose and non-glucose impregnated baits, so baits that would potentially be repellent to glucose-averse cockroaches. And they also added food odors to those, those baits. The two food odors they used were um, uh, chocolate and vanilla. And what they wanted to do was look and see if food odor also attributed to aversion. And what they found was that cockroaches, first off, could develop a positive conditional response within only one hour of feeding. <clears throat> um, when exposed to these odors. The second thing was they found that glucose averse cockroaches essentially learn to avoid attractive food odors. So that's both the, the chocolate and the vanilla are known to be attractive food odors. So these are odors that are often found and impregnated in cockroach, German cockroach baits. Avoid those attractive food odors when um, repeatedly given foods that had both those food odors and glucose over time. And they found this because eventually what they could do was remove the glucose from a food. And even though it no longer had that repellent, that glucose in it, cockroaches, those glucose averse cockroaches would still actively avoid that bait if it contained that food odor. So essentially they behaviorally trained these cockroaches to identify these food odors as a repellent um, over time. The last thing that they found was that this olfactory memory, so this this uh, the, the ability to kind of identify and learn um, what would be an attractive repellent through essentially food odor, was retained for up to three days. So these these cockroaches, these glucose averse cockroaches, would remain repellent um, and actively avoid baits that all that contain those food odors for up to three days. So essentially these findings could really have important implications on future developments of baits that contain German cockroach baits that contain attractive food odors when dealing with glucose averse cockroaches. Even if baits are reformulated without the aversive taste in, which is that glucose, these glucose averse cockroaches may still actively avoid those new baits if they still contain those same food odors. So simply taking the glucose out of a bait may not be enough to um, resolve the repellency uh, that they known to exhibit. This really gives PMP something else to consider in terms of trying to develop a better baiting uh, program whenever you're dealing with German cockroaches. When you're dealing with a glucose averse population, if you've been using a bait for a set amount of time, you know, it, in as little as one hour, they can start to develop these behavioral responses to something with those food odors. It may need, it may require more than just simply switching up baits that no longer have that attractant in there, you may actually have to identify and find a new bait that no longer also contains whatever similar food odors are associated with those baits. So that is my time. I will go ahead and stop there. Mike, that's pretty interesting because we're certainly having some resistance in the field treating German cockroaches. 
and we, we do all kinds of rotation with our baits and products to try and get control when we have a property with them. You mentioned up to three days. Does that mean that, uh, I guess my question is, if we put that bait out, they won't eat it for three days, but they might come back afterwards. They, they'll lose that olfactory memory sense to that or? Yeah, so I do want to qualify this by saying these, these were all lab studies. So this was all very controlled conditions in, in a laboratory setting. And essentially, they continuously measured repellency as so active avoidance of these baits with those, uh, the, the food attractants in there, the odor attractant, for up to three days. So after about three days' time, they started actively feeding on a bait that didn't have glucose but did have that food odor in it after three days. So, I mean, that would suggest potentially that you could experience something similar in the field that a population, a wild population of glucose-averse cockroaches could continuously avoid feeding on maybe the new bait you just put out for two or three days. So mm -hmm. let's say, you know, hypothetically, you change your bait tomorrow, um, expecting better results. Now you're no longer using, you know, you're dealing with a glucose averse population. You use a different bait that doesn't have glucose in it. But if they both still had, let's say, vanilla food odor as, a, as an additional attractant in there, they still could get actively avoid, potentially actively avoid that bait for a few days is, is essentially what these findings are suggesting. Again, this is all laboratory stuff. So there's still further work that has <clears> to be done to really solidify some of these results and, and kind of assessing how they would behave in the field. But that's what it's suggesting or potentially could suggest. All right. Thank you. Outstanding presentation. I really like the uh, information and the way you designed it. Thank you. Thanks, Yaman. And uh, there's totally, uh, absolutely some cookies and, and, and any other, you, you, let, you just text me later and let me know what your favorite food is. I'll make sure we find some food attractive uh, resources for you at, at Pest World. So. Oh, I see how you put that all together. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> so speaking of favorite foods, one of the first times I ever met Galvin, uh, we went to an Indian restaurant together in DC and <laughs> he's putting up the egg side. I'm not sure he enjoyed it as much as um, me and a couple of the other folks that were with us did. Um, I think that might have been your first first experience with Indian cuisine, wasn't it, Galvin? I was able to avoid it to that point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll keep that off the menu for Las Vegas then. He's got some strong olfactory memory of Indian food smells, so we have to remember to keep him far away. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Forget it. I love that stuff. All right. You ready for this one, Galvin? I am. What do you have, Jim? All right. The title of the paper I'm going to talk about is Piamodes herfsi, a mite new to North America as the cause of bite outbreaks. Now, this is not a new research paper. In fact, it was published in the Journal of Medical Entomology about 15 years ago in, in 2006. Uh, in this paper, the authors from Kansas State University, along with co-authors from Pittsburgh State University, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, USDA Ag Research Service, the U.S. Forest Service, the Florida Department of Ag, and the Crawford County Health Department, investigated reports of mysterious bites that were first reported by football players from Western Colorado State University following an August 2004 post-game picnic at Pittsburgh State. At the same time, local news outlets began receiving 75 to 100 calls a day from <clears throat> residents reporting bites and skin rashes. People were visiting hospitals. More than 50 students went to the Pittsburgh University 
uh, infirmary over the course of four days complaining of bites and itchy, painful rashes, but no insect could be found. <clears throat> so how's that for an introduction, right? The mystery that is afoot. Jim, don't get um, cocky. So this, <laughs> this army of researchers, you know, CDC, Florida Department of Ag, the Crawford County Health Department, Kansas State, um, set out traps of various kinds, and they started the search to determine what was causing these bites. It turns out that the bites were caused by a tiny mite, um, like about 0.2 millimeters in length, called Pyamodes herfsi. It's also called the oak leaf itch mite. This was the first time that this particular mite was properly identified in the United States. And there was only, up to that point, there was only one other record uh, from the Western Hemisphere, and that was in Chile. It should be noted, though, that subsequent review of gall mites collected in 1956 in Colorado indicated that the mite was present there, uh, but it was misidentified at the time. Now, this mite preys prime, it's a predator, it preys primarily on midges, which are small herbivorous fly larvae that develop inside oak galls. Uh, these tiny mites crawl inside the galls bite the larva and inject a venom, which paralyzes the midges. They then proceed to feed on these larvae. The venom that these mites uh, produce is described as being so powerful that it can immobilize a larva that is 166,000 times the weight of the mite. Um, and in situations where there are plenty of oak galls found on trees like pin oak, populations of the mites can get very large. Since the mites are tiny, they're carried on wind currents and can fall on the neck, arms, and backs of people uh, nearby the infested trees. The mites don't feed on humans, but when they bite human skin, they inject their venom, which results in the itchy well. The bites are described by the authors as, quote, a rosy red wheel surmounted by a vesicle that rapidly becomes a pustule. The pustules appear 10 to 16 hours after mite exposure and result in intense itching, which can often lead to secondary bacterial infection. Now, you might be asking, why are these mysterious bites in 2006 of interest to us today? Um, well, a few days ago, the New York Post ran a headline that said, DC residents terrorized by invisible flesh-eating mites. Um, it turns out that there have been a bunch of reports recently in the D.C. area to local health departments, physicians, and even pest control companies about people complaining of painful bites and itchy rashes across the D.C. region where Mike, Brittany, and I are. Um, local health officials have traced the bites to this same mite. Um, but the question is, why are there so many bites and why now? Um, now, first off, let's get this straight. The New York Post has it wrong when they say this is a flesh-eating mite. It's not a flesh-eating mite. Um, but it does turn out that this oak leaf itch mite will feed on cicada eggs. Um, following a 17-year periodical cicada emergence in Chicago in 2007, the oak leaf mite... Um, oak leaf itch mite was associated with bites and rashes in thousands of people, despite the fact that oak galls weren't observed in greater numbers than usual. The DC region, as you may have heard, just experienced its once every 17 year emergence of the brood 10 cicadas. So there's plenty of cicada eggs that is food for these mites 
and pop and mite populations here are booming right now. Uh, the recent dry weather also creates kind of a perfect storm for airborne mites to rain down on unsuspecting people. So the moral of this of this story is that despite alarmist headlines, uh, bug bites are often misdiagnosed, and sometimes physicians will blame spiders or bed bugs or some other mysterious bug. But sometimes it's none of those things. Sometimes. Just sometimes, if you bring a small army of entomologists in from around the country, you might get to the bottom of things and find something new. So that's the story of the oak leaf itch mite that is um, in D.C. right now. I went way over, didn't I? Oh, yeah. yeah. Galvin, uh, there's a a heavy penalty to be had for going over five minutes. So that way we don't have to run the risk of waking the guest up after the, the summary's done. But that was a good summary. It's a fascinating so story. Gonna... And I hate to be yeah. that person. I'm legit. I'm going to do it. I know we can't identify bites, but, you know, living in this region, we had a ton of cicadas. I have a mysterious, large, itchy well on my back that's driving me crazy right now. And I'm, I'm that customer who's like, I'm so itchy. What's this thing? But I'm convinced myself it might be an itch mite. Might be. Yeah, really could be wow. though this time. Good. Kim, is this uh, directly related to the cicadas? You think that we have these uh, increases when the cicadas are around, so they have something to feed on? Is that I th- part of it? I think that's it. You know, if there's a, like an outbreak of um, these gall midges, you know, these oak gall midges, you could have an increase in mites. But there's no indication that that's, the, that's going on right now. Uh, but what they have determined that they will also eat cicada eggs. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're coming off. I mean, if, if we would have been recording this podcast um, two months ago, a month and a half ago, we, I could open my window here and it's like it was really loud that we were just tons of cicadas and every one of those cicadas wow. was laying eggs. And so there's plenty of food. So these populations of these mites are booming. And so uh, it's thought that that's what's causing these uh, these bites. Uh, so there's not much we could, you know, you or I, you know, pest management professional can do for these things. They tell people to cover up or stay away from these areas. If we were to get some rain, that probably would actually wash a lot of mites down out of these trees. Um, we haven't had rain here in D.C. for weeks. Um, uh, so this dry weather is actually making it worse because they're just they're just flying around on the wind currents. Okay. Hey, Mike, if I go back to you just for one quick question. Yeah, sure. How many demerits do I give Jim for going over? You know, we we like to give creative license to the guests. So, I mean, if you just want to go ahead and confirm him as third place now, that's totally fine. Or tied for second. I mean, sorry, tied for second. second. Let's be nice now. Um, But uh, it's it's completely up to you. I mean, it's we we come up with an arbitrary five minute deadline uh, more for ourselves because otherwise we would probably all talk for about fifteen minutes. So honestly, I I was shooting for I was shooting for five minutes, but I. I could have gone on for 15 or 20. It's a fascinating topic. topic. I mean, we've definitely, it's, it's been the, the source of our conversation quite a bit lately. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing, but it's, you know, we're, we're starting to get more questions about it. And um, I mean, it's, it's challenging because, you know, people say, well, what's the solution? Can I just put on a repellent? Is that going to work? Like Jim said, they're, they're kind of, they're essentially paratrooping down on top of you. Right. So a repellent. I mean, they're not actively making a decision to seek you out, so the repellent really won't have much of an effect on them. Not to say it's not still mm-hmm. important to use a repellent, but yeah. Okay. Stuff. Sounds good. 
Jim, nice job. A couple demerits for that uh, <laughs> going too long, but I've never seen you shut up too quick anyway. So <laughs> I've got a winning personality, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess it is now my turn after a great repellency story, fun itch mites. So Galvin, the title of the paper I chose today is really straightforward. So you're already gonna know what the end result is here. So the title is no evidence that salt water ingestion kills adult mosquitoes. This uh, paper was published in the Journal of Medical Entomology in 2020 and lead researcher was from the University of Southern Mississippi, Donald Yee. And so if you like the show Mythbusters, you're already going to like this paper because it basically focuses on myth busting. And that's what science is all about, really. You have a question and then you try to answer that question to figure out if it's true or false. And busting myths really is an important part of our job, right? We get so many questions from our customers regarding do-it-yourself ideas or old wives' tales that have been passed down many generations. And then, of course, we have the lovely internet, social media, where ideas just spread like wildfire, regardless if they are true or not. So it's really important that we can address these questions so our customers don't do something that will unfortunately interfere with our treatments, or they may rely on something ineffective that could cause harm to themselves or their property. And I always like to have the why behind the myth. So it's kind of like when you're talking to your kids and you tell them, no, you can't do this. Well, it helps if you can tell them why they can't do it. So for our customers, it helps the customer understand why what they're doing is incorrect and it builds trust and confidence in your service. So this project came about because there were a ton of claims on the internet that mosquitoes that drink or ingest salt water will die. There were hundreds of stories on the internet that entire populations of mosquitoes were just being killed, essentially just murdered uh, if they were drinking salt water. And then products came up on the market with similar claims. So now there's products with salt water in them. So to figure out if salt water drinking mosquitoes actually die, the researchers fed nine common U.S. mosquito species, including 80s mosquitoes that spread dengue virus, yellow fever virus, Zika. They also looked at Culex species that spread West Nile and some encephalitis viruses, and then Anopheles mosquitoes, which are most well known for spreading malaria. So these are not mosquitoes we want to play around with and have these false crazy claims on how to kill and control them. To do this research, they put these adult mosquitoes in cages for a week and they had one diet option. So one thing they could feed on. So one group would have only water, another group would have only sugar water, and then another had only salt water. And then one group got to feed on a combination of sugar and salt water. The groups that could actually drink sugar had the highest survival rate, so the most that lived. And this really isn't surprising because sugar is an important component of mosquito diets, right? So uh, mosquitoes will feed on plant nectars and they need sugar in their diet. So of course this is gonna help them survive. But what they found is, is adding salt to the water, regardless if there was sugar or not, had little to no effect on survival rate. So it was not killing more mosquitoes. There's no extra mortality from adding salt to the water. And now they were using a 1% salt solution. Now, mosquitoes actually regularly get salt in their diet because it's a component of plant sugars, actually. So 1% 
um, salt is actually very similar to the amount of salt that's also in our blood. So female mosquitoes that feed on blood, blood contains about 0.9% salt. So we're basically feeding these mosquitoes salt solutions that they're used to. Uh, so you can imagine uh, where these previous studies found that adult mosquitoes that feed on salt actually will readily excrete. So they basically urinate out the salt and they already have this mechanism to get rid of excessive salt. So you can imagine that adding salt to water is really not going to affect the mosquitoes. And then your next question may actually be, well, what if we just increase the salt solution? They tried 1%. Well, come to find out if you increase the salt solution, mosquitoes can actually detect in their tarsi, which is basically mosquito toes. When they land on water that's a high salt solution, it actually will deter mosquitoes. So they're not gonna readily feed on it. So you can't just like pack water with salt and expect them to drink it. They'll only drink it at these small concentrations that has no effect on mosquitoes. So this myth was busted and it turns out that killing mosquitoes with salt water is really too good to be true. Well, that's very interesting. And for somebody who does a lot of work on salt marshes with mosquitoes, I could have done that research five years without even writing a paper. <laughs> but uh, very interesting and, and very informative. I mean, that, that really uh, takes care of a lot of the myths that we're hearing on Cape Cod when it comes to, uh, you know, the salt water is gonna take care of it, don't worry about it. But, uh, you know, anybody that's on a marsh down here knows they can't go outside in the evening. So it's, uh, it, it doesn't really no, help though. No, not at all. I love this kind of research because it's, um, you know, how many times do you get your client or, you know, a friend or whoever approaches you and says like, you know, hey, you know, I, I heard this on the internet or I read this somewhere, you know, does it work? And the answer is, almost always like, no, why in the world would that work? Right? Like, what, why in the world do you think that would work? But it's nice to be able to say, oh, uh, in fact, research at such and such university showed that that doesn't work. Right? I love that kind of research. And, and I'm going to definitely keep that one in my back pocket. Yeah, that was awesome. I, I, that, I think the thing that to me, like just is such a great thing to point out there is that we have salt in our blood. Like you're essentially adding a component to a readily available food source that they actively rely on for nutritional sustenance. Like that's what they need to survive to begin yeah, with. So, and that's such an easy explanation. When you explain it to customers, they're like, oh, I saw on the internet, there's this product that has salt in it. And it's like, oh, well, I, I looked at this product, the active ingredient, you know what, it has 1% salt. Well, guess what? Mosquitoes feed on blood and our blood almost has 1% salt in it. So it's not gonna, it's not gonna do anything. And then you tell a customer that they're immediately like, oh, okay, duh. Well, that makes sense. I just, of course, never thought of that. You know, the one thing that my brain immediately went to, Brittany, when you first said that it was to look and see how they would survive in the presence of salt, I immediately thought that it was that the purpose of the study was to add salt to like a potential breeding site or a development site. So I don't know if they did they mention anything to that at all, because I know that there are like salt marsh mosquitoes, for example, like they are unique in that they can survive in that environment. Um, yeah, but. that's a great question because, of course, you know, there are mosquitoes that breed in salt marshes um, and they didn't really evaluate whether or not there were any, you know, changes in where females were laying their eggs. So they didn't look at that in this study, but I can imagine for those mosquitoes that specifically breed in those habitats, well, it's not really going to affect them at all, but the paper didn't address that. 
Well, how lucky am I to sit here in, in front of the three of you and listen to these reports on these papers that you uh, gotten so involved with. I, I appreciate it. I really learned some stuff today. Thank you. Thanks for uh, for enduring uh, the, the the summaries from us. I, I got to tell you, Gavin, one thing I, I noticed that was kind of funny, and all three of us are guilty of this, and I feel like we're, we're doing this more and more often now, is rather than getting right into the paper, we each kind of market why our paper is important. <laughs> We're starting to lobby more and more. So it's more, more of our five minutes is actively lobbying and marketing to you, the guest, as why our paper is the better one. Let me tell you why this research is so incredibly important and why this paper <laughs> is inherently the best paper that's going to be covered today in the first two minutes. Then I'm going to talk really fast in the last three minutes to cover whatever science it is that I'm actually here to talk about. So... Yeah, I, I caught that, but all three of us did cover the science behind it. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, this is really enlightening. I, I love, like watching these uh, bug bites that you do because you talk about things, like you say, uh, you put in your back pocket, you have that knowledge for something in the future, something comes up. I mean, who would have uh, thought about oak leaf itch mite uh, as the cause of one of your customers calling up saying, hey, you know, I, I keep getting bit by these bed bugs. And you keep saying, well, I'm not finding anything. I'm not treating. And they get mad at you. And now you have an explanation for them. I'm not saying that Jim is the winner today, but that, that was very interesting. But the same well, thing with you, Mike. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Mike, the most interesting. That, yeah. I'm not saying that you're the winner, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, the olfactory memory senses uh, with the roaches and the smell and everything. Um, you know, anybody that's out in the field trying to kill German roaches, uh, every day has some type of frustration because of resistance. So that, that helps us understand that. And then, you know, <clears throat> getting to the, uh, the king of the nerds today, Brittany, uh, I'd like to congratulate you on your paper because uh, not only did you totally uh, take me and, and get me involved in what you were saying, but I noticed both of your partners there at NPMA lit up and had plenty of questions and thoughts on what you had to say. So it was a very good paper and very well uh, presented on your summary on that. Thank I you, Brittany. I appreciate that, Galvin, and Mike and Jim for lending a little bit, like making Galvin's job easier to give the the crown <laughs> to me this time. <laughs> Way to go, Brett. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. You know, next time I got to remember my body language and just start like giving the thumbs down and stuff like that. <laughs> That was real cool. And, you know, I'm uh, I, prior to Brittany's talk, I would have thought that I was going to be immune to mosquito bites because I'm pre feeling pretty salty right now. <laughs> but I've, I've learned that the mosquitoes will still bite despite my saltiness. Uh, you know, I, I knew I should have I should have started off this by saying, you know, that I've won the last two times in a row and we've never had a three-peat winner. And today could be the day we make Bug Bites podcast history. <laughs> I knew I should have started together, with that. Mike, if I only knew, if I only knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I definitely should have left out that Indian dinner. Uh, that, I don't think that was a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you brought up some bad memories there, Jim. Oh, man. See, one person's great memories is another person's not so, not so great meal. Uh, you know, it's not always the food, it's the company you're with. I enjoyed the night. Well, that was awesome. And we thank you so much, Calvin, for joining us today for uh, the NPMA Bug Bites podcast. You, um, you you really were a great guest and we appreciate all the all the work that you do for the industry, um, not only at Yankee Pest, but also uh, your involvement with NPMA and the New England Association. 
Uh, we really do appreciate your time here on the on the podcast today. So thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. Thanks, MPMA, uh, Brittany, Mike. Thank, uh, thank the three of you for having me on today. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope uh, people would enjoy listening to what we have to say. All right. Well, that's a wrap for another edition of NPMA's Bug Bites. And don't forget, if you really enjoyed listening to all the science we covered and want to take a deeper dive, head on over to our blog, npmapestology.com, and be sure to put in your email so you can keep up with the latest articles that come out on our blog. And I'm also super excited to announce we have some really cool merch, some merchandise, a exclusive NPMA Bug Bites mug. Now, we usually only give this mug to our special guest, but we want to give it to one of our listeners. So in order to have a chance to win this mug, head on over to Facebook, follow NPMA on Facebook or our Twitter page and drop us a note and let us know what your favorite uh, comment has been so far, a favorite quote, and why you're really enjoying the podcast and potentially win one of our exclusive mugs. Yep, just be sure to include the hashtag MPMA Bug Bites on your comment, and we will pick a special winner for that mug. And be sure to also like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the release of a new episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. MPMA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science, news, and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find links to the science discussed in this episode as well as technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers and pest control by visiting npmapestworld.org.